um, we're going to talk a little bit about Abraham tonight, and we're going to be in the book of Genesis, uh, starting in chapter 12 and going through chapter 22. So when we uh, take a look at this section of Genesis, there's a lot of narrative there, and there's some interesting stories that are interspersed beyond just introducing us to Abraham and the covenant that God makes with Abraham. But this is a major transition. It's almost a hinge in the book of Genesis because what has come in chapters one through 11 has all been kind of preliminary. And now that Abraham is introduced, uh, we see the actual start of the history of the nation of Israel in her forefather. And so as we move forward from here, everything is going to pertain pretty much to the ongoing narrative of, of Israel, as well as some of the uh, connections or mirrors that you see in the history of the nation of Israel a little bit later on. So we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. Uh, as we look at this section of Genesis, even though you can do uh, bi uh, biography studies of uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and you can even do it on Esau and some other individuals, what's in the Genesis text at this point is not primarily for us to look at their lives for moral lessons as much as seeing them as kind of the stepping stones in this beginning stage of the nation of Israel. Now, we didn't look at chapter 11 of Genesis, which is the story of the Tower of Babel, but it is the setup, really, to Genesis chapter 12 when we are introduced to Abraham. So you kind of have to kind of keep that in the back of your mind a little bit as Abraham is introduced. Again, the Tower of Babel is related, again, to that uh, menacing, overarching uh, enemy of the Israelites, the Babylonians, uh, and the Tower of Babel kind of shows where the world is off kilter, uh, where it's gone wrong, and what God's going to do about it to put it back on track. And he's done that a couple of times before. He's done that, obviously, with Noah and the flood story and so forth. But in this section here, he's going to reinitiate a relationship with an unusual individual. And we're gonna see that here in a second. He's not the most logical choice that you might suspect to begin a new nation. And yet at the same time, what we find is he is an individual that takes a very uh, dangerous and risky journey uh, to see where God is going to lead him. So having said that as kind of the uh, introduction to Abraham. Uh, let's take a look at a couple of things. And uh, as you can see on the screen here, um, he is an unlikely hero. And I want you to take your Bible and I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 11 for a moment. We're going to take a look at the last couple of verses and before we're Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 12. So if you make your way to chapter 11, you're going to find in verse 31, the introduction for the first time, uh, Abraham, and it says here, Terah, who is his dad, 
uh, took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. So he is a resident of Babylon. Ur of the Chaldees is, as you'll see in this uh, map here, uh, Ur of the Chaldees is uh, to the east of uh, the promised land over here. And Ur is right kind of in this section of an ancient civilization called Sumer. And you can see here that it's along the Euphrates River here. And even though Ur is not necessarily um, the capital of the Babylonian Empire, it's a very significant city, which makes um, Terah's journey out of Ur an interesting uh, question. Why would he leave Ur? Because it is considered to be one of the most substantial cities of the time. But you'll see on this map, and it's not real clear where some of these names are. It's a pretty significant journey between uh, Abram's father leaving Ur and traveling up to Haran. You can see Haran all the way up here to the northwest. It is there that uh, Terah, Abram's uh, father, will live and eventually die. And then Abraham will set out from Haran here, and he will travel to the south and to the west down into the land of Canaan. So it, it is a very significant journey, the overall journey in the life of Abraham to leave this area of power, to leave this area of uh, riches and prosperity, and to travel to a place, as the scripture will tell us, uh, to a place that God is going to show him. So uh, keep that map in mind. I'm going to come back to this uh, slide for a second here. Um, as we look at chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So it's a journey of faith. It is a journey that he doesn't really know where he's headed to. He's been living in Haran, all these years with his family, his kinship. And uh, what we find is there's this story in chapter 12 that kind of begins abruptly. It just kind of drops in here. And we're not really told uh, why uh, God would choose this refugee from Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, he would not even know who the Lord um, at this point, he is an individual uh, that we find a couple of places that was a part of a pagan idolatrous family. Um, in Joshua chapter 24, it's interesting. Don't turn there. Just listen. Uh, Joshua chapter 24, it talks about the, uh, the history of the nation of Israel that began with Abraham as they're ready to move into the promised land. And this is what's said about Terah, Abram's father, in chapter uh, 24 of Joshua. It says, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and they worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac and to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. And uh, so there's this historical notation here about um, the type of family that Abraham comes from. So Abraham is a pagan at this point. We're not really told why God would choose this individual, why he would show himself to this individual, but uh, welcome to the world of the Bible. We're not given answers to a lot of the questions that we have. Um, I think what we do discover is he is an individual that's a risk taker. Uh, he's willing to step out. Um, can you imagine taking your family and not knowing where you're going, when you're going to stop or what's there? And to get a better understanding of what they, as a whole family unit, leave behind, I'm going to hop ahead to this slide here. So here's the city of Ur right here, okay? And uh, archaeologists have discovered that the city of Ur was probably one of the most important cities uh, in the third millennium B.C., it's really kind of the one of the first New York, Chicago, LA type of uh, metropolis in the ancient world. And it is believed that it was uh, experiencing a time of great prosperity. Uh, there was a reasonable time of peace that, uh, that was there. And within the walls of the city of Ur, uh, you'll see a ziggurat here, which is a temple construction uh, for the worship of pagan gods. But there's also residential areas. Um, there is these uh, harbors and the Euphrates River that would supply the needed things for living, uh, like water and access into other areas as they move up along the Euphrates River. So the question becomes, why would Tara leave it in the first place? And then why would Abraham leave Haran, where they finally settled? And the only thing we can come up with at this point is that God told him, and whatever that meant to him at this point, he, he took a flyer on it, and he set out, and he uh, began to take this journey of many, uh, many miles, really. So if you take a look at point number two here, um, what did he do to deserve this special meeting with God and become the father of the nation? Well, we don't know, but he is the first ancestor that came out of this ancient civilization uh, that would play such a dominant role in the history of the nation of Israel later. And um, what I think is, we find is as Abraham journeys into the land of Canaan, it mirrors in many respects those people that are who were taken into Babylon into captivity coming back into the land as well. They make the same journey as Abraham does. And I think there is this conceptual link 
that is taking place between Genesis. And there's another reason why I think Genesis is a much later book than probably we have been told, um, uh, you know, in, in various settings where we've taken uh, Bible studies or listened to sermons, that type of thing. What I, what's interesting, too, is uh, the covenant begins in verse 2, back in Genesis 12. It says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and he was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So he's not a young man. Uh, he's an individual that sets out with this in his hip pocket. That's God, God's going to give to him descendants. He's going to become a great nation, and somehow this nation is going to be a blessing to the other nations as well. If you keep your thumb there and go over to Genesis 15, the covenant is repeated, and there is a connection at this point. Um, if you jump down to verse 4, um, it says here, then the word of the Lord, uh, Abram, let me back up, has his doubts about God keeping the covenant because he doesn't have a son. And um, he he says to God, well, maybe Eliezer, a servant in his estate, uh, is going to be the one that is going to carry on this covenant promise. But God says to him, verse four, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and he says, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And that echoes back to the original creation. And it goes back to that initial command that God gave the human race to be fruitful and to multiply. And this is kind of reiterated in one individual, Abram, kind of fulfilling that conceptual story of the original creation where God wants to bless and wants uh, mankind to be fruitful, and to multiply. Okay, let me stop there and see if you have some comments or questions. Did I, um, did I confuse you on anything? Or do you have some other insights or observations that you want to make? No? Okay, so here we're introduced to Abraham. Now, let's think about this for a moment. He's to leave his country and his kin. So he leaves behind his, his father and the relatives, and he sets out um, with, if you come back to chapter 12, look at verse 5. I know I've skipped around a couple of places. Hang in there. Uh, verse 5 tells us how, who he sets out with. It says, he took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran. Does anybody know what that means? Slaves. He had slaves. Okay. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. So 
he takes his immediate family and his slave labor with him on this journey. And um, he is moving in a direction a little bit at a time um, away from his backdrop, his upbringing, uh, what he knew in terms of the pantheon of gods that his father worshipped and made idols for. So he is moving kind of from what's known to the unknown in this journey. What's interesting in rabbinic tradition is, and what's fascinating to me, you don't get a lot of these type of observations from evangelical theology, but in Judaism, um, the rabbinic tradition suggests that because Tara was an idol maker, uh, Abraham grew up in a family populated by the worship of different gods that were quite utilitarian. I mean, these are useful gods that were called upon. Sometimes they were con conjoled, controlled, or manipulated for a particular purpose. That's what happens with a multitude of gods. You worship a specific god because you want to have children, or you want to have a good crop, or those type of things. So, um, when Abraham leaves, he leaves all that behind. He's leaving behind not only his country, not only his kinship, but all that would have given him some security as well. Uh, obviously, he prospered. Um, he was an individual that at least had enough money that he could buy slaves and work his land, that type of thing. Um, and God tells him to up and leave all of this. And yet what we find is uh, he probably travels um, with a sense that one of these gods that maybe he worshiped as part of his uh, family began to reveal something more to him. And that is, this is the one true creator God uh, and, um, and he begins to understand that there is the most high God, the, the God that is above all other gods. And it seems as though he is progressing and he is processing all of this at the same time. And what we're told is when he leaves kind of his national culture, and his family that formed his identity. Um, he was looking for something else. Now, we're not given this clarity in the Old Testament, but we, have, we are given it in the New Testament. So keep your thumb in Genesis. Go all the way to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. So in Hebrews chapter 11, it's often called the Hall of Fame of Faith because so many people who trusted God are named there. Uh, Abraham is given a significant amount of text in Hebrews chapter 11. But what I find fascinating is the explanation of why he set out on this journey in the first place. So come down to verse 8 of Hebrews 11. And it says here, by faith, Abraham, 
when he called when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That's a, that's a great verse, okay? He was looking for something else. He's looking for a type of kingdom that is built by God. And then it says in verse 11, by faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is, and he as good as dead, uh, that is, he wasn't able to have children, came descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and countless as the sand on the seashore. That goes back to that uh, Genesis 15 passage, same idea, uh, countless uh, stars and sand. And again, it, it, it kind of echoes back to the original creation uh, model of uh, wanting to uh, provide a place for humanity where people can thrive, where they can live, where they can prosper. Um, and so we might say that Abraham lived his life as an alien and, you know, because of these movements and journeys that he's on, as well as a friend of God at the same time. And it's a process uh, that takes some time. And he'll make some mistakes along the way. Um, and we're going to see that in a moment. He, he's an individual that trusts God, but maybe doesn't trust him completely. And I think that's the story of our, you know, all of us at times. Um, I think the other application here is there are some things that we have learned over the course of our life from our family uh, from the country that we live in that we have to unlearn in the same way Abraham had to look for a city whose foundation and builder is God. And I think that's our own journey in many respects to be able to sort through the good and to kind of move beyond the bad. So any thoughts on this uh, screen here? So now what's fascinating, come back to Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, the next thing that we're told about is that there's a famine that comes to the land. And this is a reoccurring theme in the book of Genesis. It's the same thing that Jacob is going to experience later on when he sends his sons down to Egypt to get grain. Um, and within a few verses, the text jumps immediately to Egypt. And so here is someone in the promised land that will later become what's called a land flowing with milk and honey. At the same time, it's a troublesome land. And it's a land that experiences dryness and famine and starvation. And uh, so 
here is Abram, uh, this individual that is trusting God, and he finds himself in a life-threatening situation. And so where is he going to go? Well, he goes to Egypt. And this is something that will reoccur, and it anticipates as it glimpses into Israel's future, at least from this point in the book of Genesis, uh, into um, the book of Exodus, where the entire family of Jacob that stays in Egypt becomes quite numerous. And it does fulfill that Abrahamic covenant. They become so numerous that Pharaoh gets a bit nervous about it in the book of Exodus. And that leads to a genocide of some of the young boys to keep the population under control. And what we find is that uh, Egypt plays an important part, an anticipatory part uh, of what this nation is becoming. So Abram is going down to Egypt and he's going to look for food. And this will be the first of two times in the book of Genesis when the wife of the chosen servant of God, Abraham, and then Jacob will do uh, the same thing. Uh, not Jacob, Isaac will do the same thing uh, of, of telling the, uh, the people that uh, the wife is his sister uh, and not his wife. And that's what Abraham does. He gets down to Egypt and the officials of Pharaoh fall in love with Pharaoh. She's in her 60s, at least by this time, but she's one hot looking 60 year old. And it says in verse 14, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. So Abraham doesn't speak up. He doesn't say, this is my wife. Um, and so Sarah is taken into the harem of Pharaoh. But notice Abraham gets rich off of her. Verse 16, uh, he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants and camels. So Abram gets rich off the fact that he says that Sarah is his sister. And um, it doesn't take too long. If you jump ahead here into verse 17, that the Lord inflicts serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had acquired as well. Um, but Pharaoh experiences a disease, and that anticipates the plagues that will later come upon Pharaoh and all of Egypt when Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. So you see this kind of interlocking text here, but what is happening to Sarah, uh, Abraham and Sarah is what will happen later 
uh, during the time of Moses. So um, there's one other incident. It's actually in chapter 16 of Genesis. Um, when Sarah cannot have a kid, she comes up with this brilliant idea of taking Hagar and having a child through her. So in chapter 16, it says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Where did they get this Egyptian maidservant? Ah, this is one of the, the slaves that Abram brought back with him from Egypt. And um, with, along with all the money that he uh, accumulated, and it's kind of surprising to me that Pharaoh didn't demand all that back. He took it with him. But what we find here is uh, Sarai says to Abraham, um, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And notice what Abraham does. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. This echoes back to the, uh, the original creation account between Adam and Eve. Adam listens to Eve. He doesn't think for himself. He does what she says as she gives to him a piece of the fruit and he eats of it. And that's what Abram is doing here. Tells us he's been living in Canaan for 10 years Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And then Sarah gets all jealous about it. And it's interesting that um, Abraham doesn't step in, and he doesn't intervene for Hagar. So it says here, and Sarah said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong that I'm suffering. In verse five, I put my servant in your arms. And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. Well, I don't know. Maybe Hagar was teasing her and ridiculing her because she could be pregnant and Sarah couldn't. I don't know. But then notice what it says. Um, Abram responds to Sarah. Your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Do with her whatever you think best. So Sarah mistreats Hagar and Hagar runs away. And as she runs away, she meets an, the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord tells her to turn around and go back. That's in verse 9. But notice in verse 10 of chapter 16, the Abrahamic covenant applies to her too. I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. So that raises a question. Did Sarah have to have Isaac or could the covenant have been fulfilled through Ishmael? Something to think about. So these couple of incidents that we've just looked at mirror the nation of Israel. So Abraham's actions are despicable, which kind of mimics Israel's behavior toward God. Notice at the bottom of the screen here, Abraham's trip to and from Egypt mirrors the situation of Jacob and Joseph at the end of Genesis. And after Sarah becomes Pharaoh's property, he is plagued and Abraham is told to leave Egypt. Um, and 
these mirror the 10 plagues that are coming later. And finally, both Abraham and Israel um, leave Egypt with a lot of loot. They get rich in the process as they leave uh, the land of Egypt. This text about, and the way it's constructed about Abraham is being written already with Israel in mind and the later history. So there is kind of a, a mimicking and a mirroring that is going on between Abraham and Israel's story that will unfold in the generations to come. Any thoughts there, questions there? So finally, they're gonna have a land of their own. And um, we were in Genesis 15 and the uh, reiteration of the covenant again that is given to uh, Abraham uh, is going to settle uh, within this territory. If you come down to verse 18, it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And there are people that are already living in that land, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and Jebusites. So there's a lot of mixture of all kinds of people that are living there. So let's come back to the map for a moment here. So the covenant says you're going to have a land all the way from the river Euphrates down to the river of Egypt. So you're looking at the promise of the Abrahamic covenant being this whole territory here. And, and now you know a little bit why uh, the Jewish people will still to this very day say, no, the promise was made to us. Uh, people like the Palestinians and stuff shouldn't be a part of this land because we are the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant and it's this complete territory here, okay? But keep in the back of your mind that same promise was made to uh, Hagar about her son Ishmael uh, that the Ishmaelites will become great. And, um, and so you have this, you know, the Jews and the Arabs, uh, this goes all the way back to uh, this time during Abraham and who is the rightful heir to the Abrahamic covenant. And so there, that, that's an argument that's been going on for thousands of years. And um, I don't think there's gonna be any resolution to it anytime soon. But um, if you come back to Genesis 15, it's interesting the way God chooses to ratify this covenant. So he tells Abraham to cut some animals in half. And then in chapter 15, down in verse 17, we're told how God is going to do this, um, how he's going to ratify this covenant. 
it says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and then gave him the territory and boundaries. So in this, this ritual here, um, God takes it upon himself. And the idea of cutting an animal in half and walking through two pieces of it with someone that you're making a contract with is kind of a self-imprecatory commitment that you're making. In other words, the symbolism is, if I don't keep my promise, may I be cut in half like these animals? Well, notice God doesn't let Abraham go through the pieces. He goes through by himself. And because he goes through by himself, it, it is basically saying that God is committed to doing this. And, and, and Abraham is, is the recipient of an unconditional type of a covenant. And it doesn't depend on Abraham's goodness or his faith or anything. God is making this promise and he's going to keep it no matter what. Now, there's a, some more symbolism that's going on here. If we were in the book of Exodus tonight, you could find as you read through the book of Exodus that the way God led the people out of Egypt and toward the promised land is by not only dividing the Red Sea, but leading them through the Red Sea as a blazing torch. So again, there's these um, scriptural connections that are going on here. In the same way God made a covenant with Abraham, he is keeping that covenant as he leads the people through the Red Sea in much of the same symbolism. The sea are the two halves, and he is passing through with this symbolic gesture that it's still on his shoulders to lead them into a land of milk and honey. So does that make sense? Do you see there's a connection here? between Genesis and what's coming later. Any thoughts? So I already asked the question, could Ishmael have been the fulfillment of the covenant? So in chapter 16, there's still no child in sight. And so Sarah takes matters into her own hands as we've already seen and so Hagar has a son, and um, what happens is that after she gives birth to the boy, again, she is sent out into the wilderness, and it is there that um, we find that God meets up with Hagar and Ishmael, and um so I'm in chapter 16, verse 15. Take a look. It says, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael, the son she had born. Abram uh, was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So it's interesting here that then in chapter 17, um, the covenant is ratified or reiterated a third time already in the book of Genesis. 
And um, what's interesting is what comes next. In chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, the Most High God. Walk before me, be blameless. I'll confirm my covenant between me and you and will increase your numbers. Abram fell down and said, as for me, this is my covenant for you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. His name is uh, changed to the plural. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I'll make you fruitful and uh, uh, so forth. Um, so it's reiterated again. Um, even Sarah gets a name change down in verse 15. She's named from the change from Sarai to Sarah, a plural name. And then uh, verse 17 is an interesting dynamic. Abraham fell down, face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing." So even Abraham's thinking, well, maybe Ishmael is the fulfillment of the covenant. But God clarifies, verse 19. God says, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of I will make him into a great nation. So it seems as though the Abrahamic covenant is being equally applied to Sarah's son as well as Hagar's son. Because if you look at the bottom of the screen here, uh, a little bit later, and I'm not going to turn there, but in chapter 25, Ishmael gets his own toledot. Remember the 10 toledots in the book of Genesis. These are the descendants of, he gets his own. And so it's interesting that um, he's an individual that is seen as part of the ongoing fulfillment of the promise that is made to Abraham. His only problem, though, is he is a kind of a scoundrel. And in chapter 16 and in chapter 25, he likes to pick a bunch of fights with surrounding neighbors and so forth. And so even back then, there's a lot of tensions that are going on uh, between um, these people that are the uh, fulfillment of the promises that God made. So uh, any thoughts on that? So you could, might say that Ishmael could make a claim to the fulfillment of the covenant as well as Isaac too, um, because of the way the text kind of unfolds. But is it kind of... Uh... A limited that it had to, it couldn't be uh, Ishmael because his mother was Egyptian, not Israeli. Mm -hmm. well, Is I that think, why that's not the fulfillment? Well, I, I think the initial promise was to his, him, Abraham, and his wife, who was Sarah. So uh, for the promise to be fulfilled and had to come through Sarah. But that's a great angle, isn't it? That Hagar's Egyptian. She is, you know, she's not Jew. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a good observation. Any thoughts out there? Not an Israelite. 
right? What's that? Because there is no Abraham isn't an Israelite because there is no Israel. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. So, Jacob's name will be changed to Israel. So what is I mean, I, I know Hagar is Egyptian, but what is Abraham? An a Babylonian? Yeah. I mean, that's where he's from originally, yes. But notice what the text is doing. Again, it's it's later kind of being imposed back into Genesis that he is the father of a great nation. Now, it's not defined yet what that nation is until Jacob wrestles and his name is changed because he's one who wrestles with God. But uh, Brenda, you make a great, a really good point. He's not, he's not Jewish. He's Babylonian. Okay. So is Sarah then. And, yeah, and Sarah probably too. You're right. But the way the text reads is that he's the father of this nation that will later be called Israel. So do you see there's kind of some retro uh, fitting back into the book of Genesis, I think. Um, and, and it's just kind of assumed later in the book of, uh, in the Old Testament that Abraham is the first Jew, but that's not true. Jacob is, is the one whose name has changed. So you're making a fantastic observation. Jacob is the first. Well, his name has changed. Yeah. Go ahead. Thinking of um, Hagar being from Egypt, I had never really correlated that. But mm -hmm. as long as we're making associations here and you're talking about the covenant, Jesus and his family fled to Egypt and right. then had to come back from Egypt. That's exactly right. Great observation. Yeah. So even on into the New Testament, Egypt is playing a role in this story. That's a great, great point. Any other observations by anyone? Okay. Now, in chapter 17, there's an, there's an, an, an additional angle. And now Abraham is told to get circumcised. So he's 99 years old. And um, God's reiterating the covenant, but now God wants him to do something. And Abraham must show his faithfulness. So take a look at chapter 17, verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. So it's interesting now, this sign of the covenant is part of an of faithfulness. Um, and it's interesting that um, 
verse 14 says, any uncircumcised male who's not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In other words, if there are some men that are not going to take the sign of the covenant, they're going to be excommunicated from this, this group of people that is developing. Now, we might think that circumcision comes out of the blue uh, here, but this is an ancient, ancient ritual that predates Abraham by a thousand years. And um, other cultures practiced it. And it was always some form of ethnic and religious identity. And that's what it is here as well. Perhaps it has some symbolism to it as well. The organ of procreation is being claimed by God to indicate that Abraham's offspring are in God's hands and within God's promises. Um, but it's the first, first glimpse into what is going to be revealed later in, in Torah law. So in other words, the editor of Genesis is showing that it's not only a sign of the covenant, but Abraham is a law-abiding believer even before the Torah is given, which is interesting. So um, he's, he's an individual that's doing what God wants, even though it won't be revealed until the time of Moses, Mount Sinai, and that type of thing. Well, women are completely excluded out of this covenant. Well, yeah. Well, welcome to the patriarchy of the Bible. That's that's there, the way it's written. Well, and they don't really have much input, input all through the Old Testament. There will be occasions where you'll have Ruth, you'll have Esther, you'll have Deborah the judge uh, that take leadership roles, um, but it's it's not a, a common thing, that's for sure. Because yeah. they were property. Yeah, that's right. And that's what made Jesus so wonderful, is, you know, um, the way he treated women and he changing the entire, um, the entire legacy of the Old Testament. Uh, especially as it relates to women. Okay. So. Ishmael too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. So this next slide, and I know it's already eight o'clock, um, talks about... <laughs> Isaac being born and then then God telling Abraham to take him up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And um, so maybe what we'll do, because uh, that's that's an unnerving part of the story. I think we'll pick up uh, here next week. And then I want to sh also show you an interesting character that is introduced in chapter 14 that the New Testament makes a big deal of in the book of Hebrews. His name is Melchizedek. So we're not going to get through that um, quickly. 
So um, we'll stop here and um, we'll pick up in Genesis chapter uh, 21 and 22 next week. We'll finish off the life of Abraham. And then what I'd like to do is just take a glimpse at Jacob. We'll see how far we get into that next week. And, um, and then a little bit about Joseph. And then I think we'll draw this study in Genesis to a conclusion and uh, look to do some other things starting in August. But um, you have any com uh, questions or comments that you want to make about what we have covered tonight? No. 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 Well, if it's, I mean, hopefully it's clear and you can kind of look back over the notes if you're, if you need to, but um, sometimes if you have a question, other people probably have the same question as well. The thing you should take away from Abraham is his journey of faith, his willingness to trust God, the fact that he left his country and his kin, and that the Abrahamic covenant is the kind of the basis of a new nation that's going to crop up, that's going to be named Israel later. And much of what is in this section from chapter 12 to 22 mirrors some of the events in the life of Israel that comes later. So there's these connections that are going on and, um, and you need to kind of see some of these things become a kind of dominant themes um, through the remainder of the Old Testament. So if you have no other questions or comments, uh, that's where I'll stop tonight. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Good night. Yeah, you're welcome. Good night. Good night. Yeah. Good night. Well, have a good rest of the evening, good everybody. Take care. Do. Bye. Take care. Okay. Bye.